You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. It's oh, wow. UFC 252 Fight Week, Chad. That I've been looking forward is. to this one for a while. We got something on the books. We got ourselves a trilogy to settle. And after I saw Daniel Cormier show up for his interview during the broadcast of the UFC Fight Night event on Saturday, I feel like... He is as ready to get this shit over with as the rest of us. You know you see what this? I appreciate as a 40-something-year-old man is that yeah. Daniel Cormier will sit up there in his interview and just tell us how tired he is. Yes. Just how damn tired he is, how grueling this training camp has been, and how ready he is to get this shit over with. I really uh, – I empathize with it too because when I watch it, it's like it's Saturday night. It's like 8.30 or something. And you can tell he just wants to go to bed. Like he just oh, wants yeah. you to hurry up and get this interview over with so that he can watch, you know, 15 minutes of a show and then pass out. Like that's yeah, he's, he's going to watch night. like a 30-minute like uh, sitcom, something breezy that he doesn't have to think too much about. And then maybe he'll read a couple of lines of a book and then he's passing out. He just wants to watch a little bit about some uh, History Channel show on World War II. And then he wants to get in bed and call it a night and then wake up Sunday feeling refreshed. See, you know? what we're what we're actually doing here is talking about ourselves. Yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. I would love to believe that the same is true for Daniel Cormier. And when I see him show up on these UFC broadcasts talking about how uh, how long he's been in camp and how he felt like it needed to be that way, but how tired he is. I feel like we're on the same wavelength, except with us, it's just like children. It's child care. Here's what I'm wondering, though. On the serious tip, Chad Dundas, do you think that any odds makers watched that video clip, that interview that Daniel Cormier did in the middle of the UFC Fight Night event and went, well, actually, now that I see this, maybe we we nudge Stipe Miosic up a little bit. Because I got to tell you, I mean, anybody can like, you know, just show up, look tired at the end of a training camp. Maybe that's totally normal for him. But especially when he started talking about how the last training camp, he was just so worried about getting injured and making it to the fight. This one, he wanted to make sure that he did all the things that he didn't leave any stone unturned. But then it's a week before the fight and he looks run down 41 years old. And everything he's talking about when it comes to his training camp makes you wonder if he is going to show up overtrained. And I'm going, I I got to say, I like Steep Ace chances slightly more than I did five minutes before that interview aired. Maybe, but I hope if you're a, a, a professional odds maker that you're not just now rolling over in bed and realizing Daniel Cormier is 41 years old. Like Daniel Cormier didn't just suddenly become 41 years old. Daniel Cormier has been somewhat old this whole time. <laughs> His entire MMA career, he's been kind of old for the game. It's like not like saying- he just showed up this. It's not like Daniel Cormier is not the guy who shows up and gets old in one night. He's been old the whole time. So you're saying Chad Dundas's position on the UFC 252 main event is, man, Daniel Cormier done been old. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's what you're yeah. saying? 
Yeah, and it, okay. like it's 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 almost true of Miocic too. Not that Miocic is is that many. Is, He's a is, spry thirty seven. Yeah, but like one thing that I like about this matchup, and like we don't want to give away the store here before we get into the actual the actual podcast. But like one of the things that I do like about this matchup, it's two adult men going after it, getting after this thing. Like no kids involved here. Like nope. we're not going to have twenty one year old upstart showing up in the octagon to fight for this heavyweight title. This is two grown ass adults and we're going to settle this thing over the over the 265 pound title these are guys with mortgages and ulcers yes that are going to show up in here with like investment accounts and uh corns on their feet and do the damn thing in between rounds two and three it's even money that one of these guys will be sitting on the stool and his coaches will be giving him advice and, and telling him what to do in the next round and he'll be thinking god did i set the sprinkler system did i is it going to come on tonight or did I forget to, ah, damn it. Can someone yeah. text my wife? Text my wife. Tell her don't, you got to stay on top of that lawn this late in the season. You I got know, to. or else it's, it's just going to, it's going to turn into to dead grass out there. You got to stay, yeah. stay on it. All your work will uh, be for shit. Ben, we, we had a vote this week over on the co-main event podcast, Patreon about whether or not we should carry on with the kingdom cast our watch of the 2014 to 2017 television MMA drama kingdom previously on the audience network and uh, direct TV. And you know, I guess I didn't expect it to really feel this way, but it's somewhat with a heavy heart that I have to tell the people at home that the nays carried the day. And that uh, at least for the time being, the kingdom cast is over on the CME Patreon and that we're going to be moving on to other things with our, uh, at least with our television and movie club podcast. How surprised are you to hear yourself with this sorrowful, rueful tone, one might even say, regretting the end of the Kingdom cast for the time being? Because you you didn't seem like you were super enthusiastic. Yeah, but then they got me back at the end of season one. That's how they do. I was was out, and then then I was back in, and now I'm out again because the people have spoken. But we got some new new options up there over on the Patreon uh, website for what we're going to do moving forward with the the television and movie club. I will say that the vote was, uh, while decisive in favor of moving on from Kingdom, enough interest was expressed in Kingdom that we might circle back to it, you know, in a month or two and see if if people have become more uh, amenable to carrying on at least with part of season two. But we got some new cool ideas for the TV and movie club. We're going to try to figure that out this week. And of course, over on the Patreon, just like we do every week, the Friday uh, Power Hour and the Wednesday live chat, all of that MMA related content. It's honestly like getting three co-main event podcasts per week for a low, low price. So if anybody out there has not yet joined the team over at uh, patreon.com slash co-main event and you have a hankering to do so, we invite you to to get over there, support the show, keep the discourse unfettered, keep this plucky little independent podcast rolling right, right along, uh, keep the train on the tracks, so to speak, over at patreon.com slash co-main event. If the mood strikes you, don't forget you can also run out and get yourself some CME merchandise over at cottonbureau.com. We got t-shirts for sale. We got uh, Dundasso shirts, Cowboy Astronauts, cigarettes, t-shirts. They're always available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, go over to cottonbureau.com and drape those old bones and some CME merchandise today. We got music again this week from our guy, uh, CMEO, Stockholm-based producer, aka co-main event podcast listener, Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear on the show from him, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com 
slash Semio. That's S E E M I O. We're rolling out three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Derek Lewis dropped Alexi Alinek with his dreaded flying knee bungalow to the dome combo on Saturday. But with an obviously staged post-fight interview about taking a shit, is the Black Beast trying to do too much? And in round number two, somebody better give Michael Chandler his money. Just put it in his wallet. It's the one that says bad motherfucker on it. And in round number three, Javier Mendez says the UFC could probably get Daniel Cormier to stick around to fight John Jones at heavyweight. But there's one big hurdle standing in the way of that fight, as we've been discussing. Stipe Miocic, this weekend, UFC 252. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. So, Ben, we talked extensively on our Friday podcast over on the Patreon about Chris Weidman yeah. and about how he needed a win headed into this fight with uh, Amari Akhmedov over the weekend and the co-main event of this fight night down there at the Apex Arena. It is no surprise we got a good deal of mail about Weidman who emerged with the unanimous decision victory in this fight. So I don't know that we've ever done this on the listener mail on the podcast before, but I'm going to read three different questions that we got about Chris Weidman, all of which I think okay. are are relevant and, and uh, good for, for discussion. Do you want me to read them all at the same time or do you want to take them one by one? Um, one by one. Okay, let's do them one by one. The first one this week comes to us from David Lauderay, who writes, Really glad to see Chris Weidman get the win, but man, he looked like a shell of his former self. Has he fallen off that much, or was I just unduly influenced by his recent record? Uh, okay, this is an interesting point, because like I said, while Chris Weidman does go out there and basically out-wrestles Omari Akhmedov en route to uh, the unanimous decision victory 29-27 times 2-29-28, over there on the judges' scorecards. But as I was watching this thing, Ben, I, you know, it's not that I feel uh, that Chris Weidman necessarily looks like the shell of his former self, but one of the things we talked about on Friday was like, okay, maybe Chris Weidman is not really as bad as his recent record suggests, but if he even if he does manage to right the ship and establish some new momentum at 185 pounds, he's still 36 years old. And one of the things I felt like when I was watching him fight Omari Akhmedov was like, this is definitely the 36-year-old version of Chris Weidman. Like, he gets yeah. this win. He desperately needed to get this win. He acknowledged that himself. He 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 gets it. You know, he makes good on that. But at the same time, I did come out of this thinking, like, I, it's, I don't think Chris Weidman is one of these guys who's suddenly going to jump up and start competing with the, like, Bobby Knuckles slash Israel Adesanya's of the world. Yeah, he did. He looked like a middle-aged athlete at this point. And there were some good things that he can take away from this fight. For one thing, you can absolutely see that the will and the heart is still there for Chris Weidman because he came out in that first round, was obviously looking to wrestle. I was getting a little bit worried for him in that first round because the way he was just diving in after a single leg on some of those, like no setup, just going to just straight up reach out there for your leg and hope for the best there. And I was a little bit concerned about how that was going to play. And in the second round, it seemed like he hit a wall. He looked kind of gassed. Akhmedov was starting to take over a little bit and take it to him. And then he went back, collected himself before the third round, had to you know dig in there deep and find something in the reserves that could 
pull out this fight for him. And he did it. Like he just went out there in the third round. And he absolutely dominated the third round on the mat. And that I think like you can clearly see the, the spirit is willing for Chris Weidman still, yeah. but he looks slower. He looks just kind of plodding and like just heavy on his feet. All his movements seem like, you know, he's not surprising you with anything. No real explosive movement coming out of Chris Weidman at this point. You, I mean, Akhmedov is a guy who came up from welterweight, not a particularly big middleweight. And if you look at Chris Weidman's two wins over the last, you know, ever since this losing streak started with that loss to Luke Rockhold, they've both been against smaller middleweights, guys who may be a little bit undersized for the division where he can just use his wrestling and his size to kind of take over and grind his way to a win there. He did it against Kelvin Gastelum, you know, got a submission there, but then did it here to Amari Akhmedov. And when I see that version of Chris Weidman and I try to imagine how it plays against the top three or four of the division, it seems like a bad idea. Like, I don't want that to happen to him. You know? yeah, so okay, shell of his former self. I mean, like he just looked like the, the aged version of himself. Like I, I talked about a little bit in my post fight column, but we've mentioned before how this sport just has like, it's like the way erosion works on like a coastline, basically. Like you've been you've been through enough different stuff, like just the ups and downs, injuries, all that, the, the training camps, the hard fights, the, the losses, all that kind of stuff, and it just wears away at you. And you see the signs that it has worn away at Chris Weidman. And then you mentioned in that first round, he was kind of diving on those singles. Uh, you you could almost get the impression of Chris Weidman feeling a similar thing as as what we might have been feeling at home of being like man i used to get these yeah like if i had you know when i was going this this all all out trying to get these takedowns i used to get these like this used to be easier and in this at least in the in the early going there uh he had a hard time getting omari down but eventually did succeed obviously but here's here's the next question from darcy ledrew uh, an old friend of the podcast by the way that we haven't heard from in some time so good to know Darcy yeah. LeDrew is still out there uh, listening to the show, writes, Chris Weidman gutted out a hard-fought win against a tough Russian contender. Two related thoughts. One, where would Chris Weidman be if A, Herb Dean didn't allow Rockhold to nearly kill him five years ago, and B, the UFC gave Weidman some tune-up fights following his brutal losses? I'm not sure where he'd be exactly, but I doubt he'd be 15-5 and five with a record of 2-5. and five. Uh, with a recent record of two and five, your take. This is, I think this is another interesting point that, uh, you know, we, we talked, we've talked some in the past about how uh, that UFC 194 fight against Luke Rockhold was so grueling and, and hard on both guys that uh, you look at both of their records and they both kind of took a nosedive in some ways after December of 2015. It kind of seems like that, you know, as, as much as I hate the cliche and I don't want to indulge in, in, that kind of talk, but it does kind of seem like that one fight. I think you can make a case that it kind of like changed the trajectory of both of their careers. Uh, it's hard for me to buy though, that if Herb Dean gets in there and stops that one a little earlier, everything looks different for Chris. No, I, don't, I don't, I don't want to lay it at the feet of Herb Dean. That seems, that seems unfair, but I think that the, the larger point is like this fight, that fight in particular seemed to be sort of a crossroads for both of those guys. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it's easy to to point that way and look. But I mean, as far as the question of should he have gotten some tune-up fights after that, like he he fought Yoel Romero after that, and then Gegard Mousasi. Those are two tough fights. But he was just very recently the champion. If if the UFC had come to him after Luke Rockhold and been like, "All right, we want to get you back in there. 
but like we don't want to rush anything. How about you and Omari Akhmedov? Like back then, he would have been like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, or whoever was the Omari Akhmedov equivalent of the day back then. Like they said like, okay, well, we we're thinking of it as a tune-up fight. He would have been like, I have not fallen so far that I got to fight these guys way down the rankings. Like I was just the champion. This is my first loss. There's no way that I think I should step all the way back. Like I'm still in the hunt. He wants to be in the situation where he can win one fight and then be back in a, at a title contention position, which that's what everybody wants right after they lose the title. Like if they're not going to get that immediate rematch, uh, which, you know, he, he, he could have gotten, but it like, if you're not going to get that, then you want to turn around, at least fight somebody who, if you beat them, then it's proof that you deserve to be right back in there fighting for a title again. The problem is like once we've talked about it before, once you get to a certain level of like fame and money and attention in the UFC, they're not going to serve you up a whole lot of easy fights because they feel like, well, we're really paying for these. Like we want to put on a good fight, like something that's actually going to help move pay-per-views and stuff like that. So you end up in those, those hard fights. But I think that if even if he could have gone back and done it over, I don't think he would have been like, well, I should have been trying to look for easier fights back then. Right. It's a comment on on mixed martial arts, right? And how the UFC works. Like if this were boxing and Weidman loses a hard fought championship fight to Luke Rockhold, I think it's pretty believable that he would have a tune up fight or two, that he would come back against some people that uh, maybe we had not heard of before or seemed a, like a, a cut below his his ability level. But, you know, when you're one of the elite fighters in, in any division in the UFC, it's just kind of the name of the game is that you have to fight uh, the Yoel Romero's of the world, the gay guard Musasi's, and then, you know, Ronaldo Jacare Souza and whoever else. So uh, it's just kind of uh, how it works. It's just sort of the name of the game. But at the same time, like, is it reasonable to think that that kind of murderer's row on an athlete who at the time was in his early thirties, but is sort of approaching his mid thirties. Like it, does that take, uh, does that, uh, does that limit him? Does that, does that cut short? Like what otherwise might've been a longer athletic prime? Maybe. I, I mean, I think that there's some validity to that, that you ask so much of him, put him through all these hard fights, one right after another. And especially, you know, he dealt with some injury stuff uh, during some of this time period, but to go through those hard fights, I, I'm sure that that takes a little bit out of you. Uh, but I also think it's not as if you could have just manicured an easier path and that we would not have ended up with a 36-year-old Chris Weidman looking like a 36-year-old athlete who's not who he used to be. Like, yeah. I think time is just going to do some of that on its own. Yeah. Also, uh, we should mention Chris Weidman. If you if you buy into the the philosophy or the 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 thought that Chris Weidman is getting old, like Chris Weidman is getting old about the time an athlete should start to get old. Yeah, you know, I think in mixed martial arts sometimes we look around at at like the Randy Couture's of the world, uh, guys who are fighting into their forties and into their indeed their like mid to late forties, and we think like that's the norm for an athlete. But you have to remember with a lot of those guys and the and the MMA's checkered history. Like, you know, the Vitor Belforts and uh, Chael Sonnens of the world, even the Dan Hendersons of the world, those guys were all getting a little help back in those okay. days when uh, when they were at the top of their game, seemingly like in their late 30s to, or, you know, early 40s. Like, if you are a, a a natural athlete, you probably should be slowing down when you're by the time you're 36, 37 years old. Checkered past, huh? Okay. Checkered past. Okay, here's one from Sean Clark. 
the last of our Chris Weidman emails for this week. He says, pondering Chris Weidman today and wanted to get your take on a couple items. First, the notion of wins aging well. While Weidman has wins over Anderson Silva, Machida, and Belfort as his prime wins, over time it would seem that this is true of a lot of fighters. My central confusion is whether Chris is the same fighter he always was and the game has evolved or whether certain fighters have infinitesimal primes and this is 50% Chris Weidman discourse. Now, we just talked a little bit uh, earlier, Ben, about how it doesn't seem like Weidman is maybe as quick or as capable as he was throughout the the early stages of his UFC career. But what if we look at the the signature wins for the career of Luke Rockhold and you see Anderson Silva. Chris Weidman. UFC, is Luke that what Rock. I said? What did I say? Yeah. Oh, Luke Rockhold. Yeah. Uh, Chris Weidman. Uh, I love that you will always correct me. Uh, Listen, we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about the signature wins of Luke Rockhold right now. I just will no, not. We, no, we are not. If you look at the Anderson Silva wins, UFC one sixty two and one sixty eight, uh, obviously an Anderson Silva who was himself getting on toward the end of his prime, just had not been beaten yet. Then you got uh, Leota Machida at one seventy, UFC one seventy five, and Vitor Belfort, an obviously different version of Vitor Belfort at UFC one eighty seven compared to the TRT charged Vitor Belfort who had been fighting in the years uh, previous to that. I don't want to discount Chris Wyman. I don't want to sell him short. We talked on Friday a lot about how for a long time he seemed like he was going to be the future of this division. I feel like it's an unfair thing that we do when we look at MMA fighters and their their past achievements and try to undercut those or try to uh, make it seem like uh, they were not as significant as they seemed at the time. But if you look at this list, did Chris Weidman get like a boost in our eyes from beating a run of guys who maybe were themselves a little bit past their prime? I mean, you can do this with anybody. Right. Like, I don't I understand like the concept of like, okay, a win can look good in the moment, but then like successive fights can show like that guy was already kind of on the precipice and you were just the first one who came along at the right time, able to push him over the edge. And sure. But I mean, like, I don't, I think we sometimes do that way too much to the point where you, you're discounting the possibility that like, how can it, t- two things be true, right? Like the one thing we talked about, we're like, okay, a bad beat down at the hands of one dude signaled for you the start of a downfall. But like, also, then we want to turn around and be like, but when you beat somebody else up, it was only because they were already fallen on that downfall. Like, if it's possible that somebody beat you up bad enough that it affected the rest of your career, it's also possible that you beat somebody else up bad enough that it affected the rest of their career. That maybe then they didn't just fall off because they were ready to fall off. Maybe you knocked them off. And two fights against Anderson Silva that he wins, like one where he wins with lock knockout, the other one that he wins with freakish leg break, but like he played a role in. Maybe we ought to give him the credit that like maybe what happened with Anderson Silva after that was a result of what happened to Anderson Silva against Chris Weidman. And as far as like the question of like, has the game just done changed on Chris Weidman and he didn't keep up? And I think that definitely happens. We've seen fighters where it absolutely happens where they don't change and evolve. And a thing that worked well, you know, three or four years ago doesn't work well anymore. But with Weidman, I think that if you go back and you compare just what he looks like physically, what he's able to do like in that Mark Munoz fight versus against Omari Akhmedov, you can see like that's just an older aging version of the guy who has been through a whole lot of shit since then. And, and we talked, it makes we talked sense that Friday. it take a toll. We, we talked on Friday about, uh, you know, the Weidman, Weidman had, had appeared that a, he was going to have the skills to be on top of this division for a long time. So I, I, you know, I would also point out that even before those, 
those signature wins, like going back even to to when he choked out Tom Lawler in San Jose, uh, he was a guy who looked like he was going to be great. Like he just had the skills. I don't think that those those wins over Anderson Silva and, and Machida and uh, Vitor Belfort are are the only thing that you pin his greatness on. Like he he even as, even he was before he even got to the UFC, the the dudes at the Sarah Longo gym were pointing him out and being like, "That's a future champion." Like he's a guy who definitely had those skills. Uh, so I think you have to take all of that into account. And and even if it is true and appropriate to say that he took on those those guys and got his signature wins maybe toward the end of their careers or the end of their primes like you can't blame him for that either it's not like chris weidman set it up that way he had nothing to do with it you just got to take the fights when they when they come around so uh i don't necessarily want to you know shortchange him yeah then you know i would be damned if we spent this entire show and we did not discuss Benil Dariush. Yeah, okay. So here is a question from Beaumont Livingston. Beaumont seems, Livingston. Seems like a, a real name. Seems on the level to me. Well, you don't, you, you're going to tell me you don't know what Beaumont Livingston is from? I, I'll give right you a hint. off the top of my head. Somebody with a grudge blew Beaumont's brains out. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, is Tarantino. back to you now? Is that That's what we're right. Doing? Okay. Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, one of the lesser Beaumont known. Livingston, the player, the the character played by uh, by Chris Tucker, I believe. It's bailed out of jail from then, beyond the grave. Yeah, writes to us. You guys, I joined Team Benil Dariush a while back. Got in early on a charter membership. He is now on a five fight heater with that thunderous spinning shit. Had some troubles with the scale, but can we get him? Could we get him in the a top ten guy? Uh, where do you go next if you're booking him? So, Benil Dariush, Ben goes out there, nails the spinning back fist KO after four minutes and 38 seconds of pretty hot action, I have to say, against uh, Hot Sauce Holtzman. And then uh, gets on the mic afterward because Dariush missed weight, came in two pounds over here at 158, so he was not eligible for a bonus, but gets on the mic during his own post-fight interview and is like, hey, if you thought that that was performance bonus worthy, uh, go ahead and give it to, to Scott. Like, because I can't get one, just give it to Holtzman, which is, uh, you know, showed, I think, in in a couple of moments that not only is Dariush extremely talented and one of the probably more overlooked guys in this division, but also he's an incredibly nice guy, seemingly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, the five fight heater that Beaumont Livingston references here, this is a good point. Because, first of all, I know everybody will point to the missing weight and be like, okay, they don't want to give if – you, if you're looking to not give a guy full credit for his wins, that's one way you can do it. But his explanation afterwards where he was just kind of like, you know, I didn't adjust to the pandemic way of doing things. And like I thought I would go down and get in a sauna and they were like, no, you, we don't really do that right now. You got to get in one of those like personal like portable sauna things. And it just didn't work as well and I, I ran out of time cutting the weight. And I don't think he's ever missed weight before in his career. So – I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. And people want to talk about fight like wins aging poorly over time. Let's talk about a win that has aged well over time. Part of this five fight heater is when he submitted Drew Dober uh, last year. You look at what Drew Dober has done since then. That win looks pretty good. Drew Dober is looking like you know he might be on his way to being a capital G guy. So he comes out here, looks 
fantastic right out the gates against Scott Holtzman. I mean, credit to Holtzman's toughness that this fight even lasted four minutes and 30 seconds because it looked like it was about to be over in a hurry. And Holtzman just kind of gutted his way through it for a little bit while there until Darius finally put him away. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm with Beaumont here. I'm ready to join. I, I'm ready to get whatever kind of membership I can get on the Dariush uh, bandwagon at this point. But also when he was showing up at the press conference afterwards and he was like, I don't know, like I'm trying to talk to the UFC and tell them, like, give me some some big guys, give me some big name fights. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to move up. And I feel like I'm begging them for something. And I and I feel like I'm done begging. And I'm like, yeah, man, I, I mean, I know that that division is just so deep in talent that it takes a five fight here before we kind of even notice that you're there sometimes. But we got to give this guy some some bigger tests. And let, let's find out what Benil Darius can do at this point in his career because it does seem like he's firing on all cylinders right now. Yeah, only at lightweight could you go back-to-back-to-back to back to back performance of the night awards and then have this performance against uh, Scott Holtzman, which almost certainly would have earned him a fourth yeah. performance of the night bonus had he been eligible against guys like Drew Dober, Frank Camacho, and Dakar Close, and we're still sort of dealing with you as an afterthought. Like only at lightweight could that be the case. If you were at any other division and you beat guys who are that well regarded and got bonuses and did it in like that kind of highlight real fashion, we'd probably be clamoring for you to get a title shot. Right yeah, now. If you were a heavyweight, you'd have fought for the title two fights ago. Yeah, this would be your second title defense, <laughs> yes. uh, which is uh, historically the cursed one. So yeah. That's, you know, that's where you get into trouble. Dariush is lucky. He's yeah. he's not a heavyweight. But like, uh, do you think that Dariush's kind of unassuming personality and maybe the fact that he looks kind of like a normal guy getting off the bus uh, works against him in the eyes of the UFC or in the eyes of, of the majority of fans? Like if he were uh, out here calling out names and if he was looked, you know, had a 12 pack getting off the bus had his like, hair dyed like a right uh, if he had his hair rainbow. dyed like a rainbow or, or bleached blonde or something like that and he was digging people's graves after he uh after he knocked him out like would he be more top of mind than he is now i feel like he's kind of i really like benil dariush and i'm the kind of guy who likes an unassuming nice guy lightweight murderer but like would he would he be somewhere higher top of mind with most people if he was out here being a little bit more outlandish Maybe, but I would hope that I could direct those people's attention to Benil Dariush's Wikipedia page in which he has one of the all-time great Wikipedia profile photos, Chad, in which he is standing there with something approximating a smile, not quite a full smile, and he is wearing a Benil Dariush t-shirt in which there is a crude drawing of Benil Dariush that really, you know, at best resembles him, but... The cartoon drawing is making the same not quite smiling face. Like that's that's how you do it right there. That's good work right yeah. there. Uh, I, one of the other, I mean, even for such a nice guy, the, despite the fact that he is such a nice guy, he is out there trying to murder Scott Holtzman with those punches. Like that, that was I, I was sitting at home watching it on my laptop, being like talking to myself, being like, God damn, he's. He's throwing them heat. He's throwing that them heaters right here. And Scott Holtzman, frankly, it was a guy that you and I have both interviewed. Another dude who is super nice yeah, and likable, at nice least guy. in our interactions with him. Uh, Dariush is out there trying to kill this man. Well, in fairness, when it becomes clear that Scott Holtzman is not going to go away easily, and you're like, well, it's like a zombie movie where you just got to remove the head. 
and uh, that's that's all you can do. I, I I don't I don't know what else you want Darius to do in that point when when Scott Holtzman is just going to keep coming back, keep getting up off the floor, and keep making you beat him up. I just I wanted him to do exactly what he did. All right, I guess that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. And we would love to tell you it's funny. Maybe the best thing about it is that it's really easy to unsubscribe. So As easy. for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, we made light last week over on the Patreon content a little bit of Derek Lewis's pre-fight promises here that he was going to show up against Alexi Olenek looking different than he'd ever looked before and doing things we'd never seen before. But in fact, you did actually sort of get kind of a svelte version of Derek Lewis out here uh, being uh, giving a slightly different appearance than what we'd seen from him in the past against Alexia Olenek, doing some different stuff. I want to read this email that we got from a friend of the show, Andrew Millington, because it's about this uh, this topic. He writes, did Derek Lewis acknowledging jujitsu's existence bother anyone else? I can appreciate the Alan Belcher versus Pal Harris approach, but you're Derek Lewis, man. This isn't you. Please discuss this perversion of the natural order. Ben, Derek Lewis is out there supposed to be uh, doing nothing but throwing heavy leather. When he gets taken down, he's supposed to take a deep breath, wait for a while, and then stand back up. We did get a slightly different look here at Derek Lewis, did we not? We did a little bit, but I mean, also... what he's capable of. It's not like he's going to go out there and be Fabricio Verdum all of a sudden. I want the, the Derek Lewis who is a little bit more aware of his own limitations, I guess. I mean, I... Some of the things that I feel are really relatable and likable about Derek Lewis, especially when he starts talking about like his fitness regimen, it always seems to be the same thing of like, well, he's he's finally working out hard. Like he he didn't used to work out hard. Now he's working out hard. And like then talking about his weight, like where he wants to get down, you know, to like 250, like somewhere in that range. And it's like, man, it always seems with Derek Lewis, like the diet's going to start on Monday, you know? And in in a way, I think it's one of the things that is really likable about Derek Lewis is that he seems like he doesn't ever take shit way too seriously. Like he's going to show up there. He's going to try and knock somebody's head off and everything. But he also has a little bit of distance on it where he treats it as a job. Like where he's talking about how he couldn't tap out to the scarf hold from Alexia Linick because his kids would be making fun of him and shit like that. You're like, okay, I like having this guy around instead of like, showing up in every interview and talking about how he is a, a, a fighter of, of glory and, and destiny uh, chosen by God to be the champion and stuff like that. It's like Derek Lewis is going to show up and have some fun. And I appreciate that. But when he's out there grappling with Alexio Linick, when he doesn't need to, like to the point where like, even when you, if you think part of your plan is I'm going to get this guy down, get top position on him, use my weight on him and just kind of wear him out a little bit so that I can knock him out later on for Alexio Linick. He's like, Oh great. This is wonderful. 
Like I was worried about how I was going to get this fight down to the ground. And then you, you did it for me. And so now as part of my escape from the bottom, I'll just escape into a single leg and take you down and reverse from top to bottom. And as long as you were content to keep this fight, like where we're constantly touching each other, I can always have a way to grapple my way in, into victory. And he almost did. Like he almost did it in the first round there where he had Derek Lewis in some tough spots and watching it when you know what Derek Lewis is capable of is really frustrating because you're like, Derek, no man, just get up and get away. Just get away from this guy. When you have an opportunity kind of reset in the center of the cage and then knock his damn head off. And it's like when he went into his corner, you know, after the first round and his coaches kind of talked to him along the lines of like, Hey, we don't need to be doing this. Like, you you have a another option. You can do the other thing. Like, let's go do that thing. Because I don't think this guy can deal with that thing. You're giving him the one thing that he can deal with. And I guess as much fun as it is for me when Derek Lewis shows up and does that thing, I still find myself wondering, okay, if you look at like the top three, four dudes right now at heavyweight, what does Derek Lewis do when he deals with somebody who doesn't need him to be the guy to engage in a ground battle when he fights a wrestler who's good enough to just be like all right i'll just take you down when i want to like he didn't have an answer for that when he fought daniel cormier does he have an answer for it now and i i'm not convinced that he does yeah that finishing exchange was pretty though it was awesome he goes out there like if you could do that why would you do anything else right yeah he throws that flying knee didn't didn't really hit the mark but hit alexi alinic enough to kind of jar him off balance and then comes back with the punch before Olenek could really recover. And, of course, that's the essentially the end of it, the, the beginning of the end uh, in any case. But, like, I think you're right, man. Like, uh, uh, Derek Lewis, he's got, he's got these skills. And, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe, his, uh, maybe his penchant to just sort of get up off the mat, which is a thing we have talked about before, leads to some, I don't want to say complacency, but, like, he leads to some overconfidence maybe where he's like, if this thing – if it goes down to the ground and I get in a tough spot, I can always just take a deep breath and then stand up because it's the thing that I've always done throughout the rest of my career. Yeah. Uh, I just like – if you try to picture Derek Lewis against like Stipe or something doing that stuff and it just seems like if you're up against a smarter fighter who is not going to be so easily caught on the feet, who can change levels and take you down kind of at will – and who can fight, like put together a smart fight that wears you out until you're more vulnerable. It's hard to see how Derek Lewis gets past that. And yet at the same time, he's so damn fun to have around. Like the stuff that Derek Lewis brings to any kind of fight week, you kind of know what you're going to get. And I love the hell out of it. Like when he can knock somebody out and then he's going to go shout out a, a shave ice place. I'm like, well, yeah. That's that is I want that heavyweight to be somewhere in the mix at all times in my preferred version of MMA. Well, let's talk about this, the the fun quotient with Derek Lewis, uh, because he does bring an exciting style to the cage. And as everybody knows, he's an extremely likable personality outside of it. He got a lot of publicity when he said his balls was hot. Uh huh. Yep. And then in this interview with Paul Felder. At the very beginning, he shows up and says in a way that seems like he had thought it up beforehand. Or he's like, okay, I'm going to say I got to take a shit. He makes it seem like he's talking to his coach or someone off camera. He says, I have to take a shit. And then he goes on with the rest of his interview. I'm here to make the point, Derek Lewis does not have to do that. 
Der- the rest of Derek Lewis's off the cuff interview with Paul Felder is amazing. Like that's all he needs to do. He he doesn't need to do the I gotta take a shit thing. He needs to do the he had me in the British Bulldog choke uh and I couldn't breathe and I'm glad that I got Talk out about of a it. Scarfold, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh he needs to do that. He needs to shout out the Shave Ice place uh, amidst a lengthy <laughs> list of uh Derek Lewis sponsors, by the way. That's what I'm look- saying. Derek Lewis is trying to do too much at times. He doesn't need to to look off the camera and say he's gotta take a shit. But we have rewarded this behavior in the past. Yeah, you can no, understand totally how Derek Lewis would be like. I mean, he's the kid cracking jokes in the middle school cafeteria and people keep laughing. And so he's going to keep coming up with the same kind of jokes. And these are exactly the kind of jokes that would just absolutely murder in a middle school cafeteria. So like that is kind of his his whole niche right there. And and he knows it. And he goes, uh, somebody mentioned what you talk about the long list of sponsors where uh, like somebody responded to me on Twitter being like, I couldn't tell if those are his sponsors or if those are just the advertisement mag- magnets like stuck to the side of his refrigerator that ha- that he has gotten for free patronizing various businesses over the years. And you're like, that's what I want out of a sponsorship arrangement with a fighter. I want it to seem like I can't tell if he's being paid to shout these people out or if he just enjoys their products. Right. Like that, that's what you're going for. That's the ideal version. Because Derek Lewis, like, hell yeah, he's going to want to have a shave ice on a hot summer day in Texas. Of course he is. Of course he's going to have a favorite shave ice place. He's going to have strong opinions about all kinds of shave ice places. Like that's, that is very much the Derek Lewis that we want there. I, I mean, I agree with you a little bit that like you, you catch fire with the balls is hot and you're looking for another one of those moments and maybe you, you get a little carried away with it. But you know what? I'm willing to take the good with the bad and, and that term when it comes to Derek Lewis. It is absolutely our own fault. Like we, we created this monster. We encouraged this. And I, I also believe that the MMA, uh, the MMA media sphere, social media sphere is probably best compared to a school lunchroom. I think you nailed it right there. There you go. What about the future of Derek Lewis here? Curtis Blade says he's got next. Uh, Derek Lewis Says he's not going to fight again until he gets down to a respectable 250 pounds, 240 pounds. Uh, is that is that a good move for him, uh, Curtis Blades? Because you were just talking about like, yeah, Derek, you don't need to be doing this. Let's keep this in our own world. A guy who is definitely not going to want to keep it in that world and who has the ability to dictate dictate where the fight will be contested is, in fact, Curtis Blades. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the problem for Derek Lewis is – if you really are trying to move up the ranks, like if he does have designs on getting another title shot and really fighting his way there this time, then like, what else do you do? He has three wins in a row. Now it looks like, I mean, the Nganu fight, like, uh, you know, Francis Nganu probably going to be next for whoever wins the main event at UFC 252. And plus the last time we tried to make a can't miss banger between Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, it reminded us why we should never, say that something is a can't miss banger in MMA, especially heavyweight MMA, but it's kind of either like somebody like Curtis blades, uh, somebody like Jazir and Rosenstrike somewhere. Uh, he mentioned Alistair Overeem. It's somebody around that. Like that's kind of the only reasonable options for him at this point. Curtis blades is the one that is the biggest, like rankings wise, high profile opponent that he could fight. Also probably the worst possible style matchup out of all those guys for him. But then, I mean, 
if you are looking to make a point, like to prove like, hey, I'm not just the fun heavyweight who shows up and knocks some people out every once in a while and also gets, you know, taken down and, and lays there and looks tired. Like I am a championship caliber heavyweight. Then Curtis Blades is the guy you want to fight. If you want to just keep collecting paychecks and bonuses, knocking people out, then I'd look for somebody else. At some point, he's going to cash in that win on Francis Ngannou, right? Even though it was a fight, <laughs> none of us like, ever hey, wanted. I would like to remind you all that right, I beat yeah. this guy. Even though it was like a uh, maybe a version of Francis Ngannou who had not quite psychologically recovered from Steve Miocic, and it was a fight that we all agreed we never ever wanted to see again. If Derek Lewis keeps winning, at some point, he's going to cash that in. He's got that ticket. He can take it to the to the counter and and cash in another fight with Francis Ngannou. Yeah. So. All right, Ben, uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can move on to round number two. What is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, I saw it was going to be mentioned in the listener mail. We didn't quite get to it. I'm kind of glad because I wanted to take a second and highlight the the especially post-fight work being done by Darren Stewart here mm. on the the undercard, the, on the main card here. Because first of all, I missed this finish because – it happened so suddenly. It was first we were looking at a stand-up fight. While after, you know, I saw Darren Stewart get rocked by a right hand from Mackie Patolo. And then the next thing I knew, I was being asked to put a, a clothing garment onto a stuffed animal. And as you know, sometimes that's harder than it sounds. Like yeah. their arms just don't go in the holes and everything. But, you know, you're doing whatever you got to do to send the kid back up to bed. And then I turn around and Darren Stewart has somehow submitted Mackie Patolo just out of nowhere. I thought yeah, we were having we a stand-up a fight. Slick as hell guillotine choke. That's slick how he done it. as hell guillotine choke off the takedown attempt. Fight's over. And then afterwards, Darren Stewart's the type of guy to let us know that he's still looking like a snack. This is a uh, – is this a, a known saying over there in the UK? Looking like a snack? Is that a, is that a, a colloquialism? Wait a Are you, you're unfamiliar with the, the the whole looking like a snack thing? Yes. Is this a, oh. a meme that I should know about? I mean it's not eh. – it's not just like a, a cultural, like one country, but people on the internet be saying that you're looking like a snack. Maybe oh, see, that's, Jed, that's you don't problem. hear it often because I hate to say it. You're not looking like a snack. Maybe I'm not traveling in is. the right circles. You know what? I think you're looking like a snack, Jed Dundas. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. But Darren Stewart out here after a middleweight bout, still looking like a snack. Yes. Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? Give that man a little bit of attention. Let's not, let's not just forget that that whole thing just happened there, especially because after I was having a good time watching Benil Dariush showing out there against Hot Sauce Holzman and then Yana Kunitskaya and uh, uh showed up for three rounds and just bored the hell out of me, Chad. And I, I, was, I was feeling kind of down. And then th- those guys brought me back up. So I appreciate it. Fucking kidding me. Uh also, two really good nicknames because you got the dentist, right? Shades of Josh Near, the dentist, yeah. the previous dentist in uh, Darren Stewart. Mackie Patolo, Coconut Bombs with a Z. One time, uh, Mackie Patolo texted me. And uh, you know how like your iPhone, if you, the person is not in your contact, sometimes it'll be like, maybe. It'll say maybe in a colon mm-hmm. and say who the person is. Yeah. The text came over and it said, maybe Coconut Bombs. With a Z? Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, that's him." Yeah, that's that's Mackie Patolo, all right. Not there's no maybe about it. Coconut bombs. <laughs> what do you think the the process is like when you're settling on that nickname and you're talking with the dudes in the gym and your manager and your coaches and they're like, "Coconut bombs." That'd be right. But like, I don't know, it's missing something. Wait a minute. 
what if we spell bombs with a Z there you at go. the end? And they're That's like, right. there it is. There it is. Lightning in a jar. Ben, I feel like the MMA world kind of no-sold Tim Johnson coming out here and beating Matreon over the weekend at Bellator. And I know that there was a headbutt involved. And so there's some controversy here. But I think that I have identified the true reason why uh, no one seems all that excited to talk about Timothy Johnson getting arguably the biggest win of his Bellator run over there. Is it's it Matt Mitrion? Is it facial hair related? It's because he shaved the mustache. He shows up with just with the five o'clock shadow, the all over beard and the shaved head. And I don't even know if it's the same guy, to be quite honest with you. I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't look like a guy who'd pull me over out on the highway. Ask me if I know how fast I was going. You fucking kidding me? Tim Johnson, you got to keep that mustache, man. It's the, a mistake. it's the key to the headlines. Yeah, that, that, that's beat, a major mistake. If he had beat Matreon with the mustache, we'd be doing a whole show about Tim Johnson right now. 60 minutes, 60 minutes, Ben, of Tim Johnson, TKO, and Matt Mitrion. I feel like the only facial hair question that Tim Johnson really needs to ask himself is, do I want the mustache to say Highway Patrol, or do I want the mustache to say, hey, friend, you got any more of that good sarsaparilla? Like those are the only two options. Like it's which end of the spectrum do you want that mustache on and then go with it. Like that's all you have to figure out. The rest takes care of itself. Grow it back. Are you fucking kidding me? Grow the mustache back. I demand it. kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Jed, just as you might be settling in for, oh man, is this going to be a very careful, very strategic five round, whatever, Benson Henderson, Michael Chandler kind of fight where we're just winning and losing by the smallest of margins. Nope. Turns out Michael Chandler is just going to go out there and win via knockout in the first round. We get about two minutes, nine seconds into this one, and then nice little uh stance switch off the body kick Chandler coming in with that long lunging left hand puts Benson Henderson down a couple follow-up shots then put him the rest of the way out Michael Chandler it appears has just ended at least this current Bellator contract with a two-fight winning streak including you know two straight knockouts one over former UFC lightweight champ Benson Henderson and this time Chad he seems to be making more noise than usual about the possibility of going to the UFC. Do you buy it or is he just doing the thing where you want to make, you know, your longtime flame go ahead and propose you pretend to be interested in somebody else for a little while? You know me, man. I want to believe I'm just like a kid out here uh, living from moment to moment. And you're going to tell me we got the opportunity to have Michael Chandler come over to the UFC lightweight division, start fighting people like Dustin Poirier start fighting people like perhaps Benil Dariush. It's too much for me not to hope for it, man. I want to see it. And and as much as I like Bellator and I want Bellator to succeed, Michael Chandler has been over there a long damn time, man. He has. I don't know what else he could do over there. I guess continue to earn money. That's the, uh, the number one goal here in the life of every prize fighter. But at the same time, Michael Chandler is one of these dudes who has been awful goddamn good over a long period of time, former Bellator lightweight champ, as everybody knows, 
uh, only real recent losses are to to Patricio Pitbull and Brent Primus, but we still don't really know how good he is or how good he could be. We think that he is really damn good. And if he is interested in legacy, if he is interested in, in, uh, you know, proving the point of how good he is, there's really only one place to do it, unfortunately, in the current landscape of mixed martial arts. So I guess I'm keeping my fingers crossed, although I know you last week when we talked about weren't really buying it. You think he's probably going to re-sign with Bellator, but like uh, as long as we can live this dream, I'm going to be living it. Well, I got to say, I, that's what I was thinking beforehand was that, okay, he's doing the thing that he likes to do over and over again. And I'm still not willing to get my hopes all the way up that this time is going to be different. But if you look at what's going on over on Michael Chandler's Twitter, it's interesting. I'll say that. There's some interesting activity, including he uh, he retweeted something that uh, my man Sean Alshadi wrote for The Athletic, but only the parts it seemed like. I don't know if Michael Chandler actually has an athletic subscription to go click through the article and actually read it. I doubt it. it. I doubt it. But the the actual slide just shows the quote that from Sean Alshadi writing, he's done everything he can do in Bellator. At this point, there's nothing left for him other than a Patricio Freire rematch. It's time to see him in the UFC. Michael Chandler saw that and probably nothing else and hit retweet on that bad boy. Yeah. And... I don't know. I, I can definitely see that argument if you're like from both sides, honestly, because if you're Bellator and you're like, OK, do we really want to up our offer to Michael Chandler to lock him down basically for the foreseeable future, the rest of whatever is left of Michael Chandler's prime, most likely? And what like he becomes lightweight champion again, maybe maybe he doesn't. And he just sits here knocking off everybody else that can possibly climb up to challenge for the title. I don't know. Maybe you you feel like uh, he could go to the UFC. The question I would have for if the UFC does sign Michael Chandler is then what do they do with him? Because you mentioned Benil Darius. Somebody else mentioned that on Twitter. And as soon as I started even thinking about the idea, I was like, well, shit, I need to see that fight. Like, give it to me. But I could also see the UFC signing somebody like Michael Chandler and doing the thing that the UFC has sometimes done. Then like, let us find the worst stylistic mashups for him possible. And make sure he starts his UFC streak on like an 0-3 run or something just so we can make some kind of point about the difference in talent between the two promotions. Yeah. See, I was going to ask you if like what kind of acquisition the UFC would consider Michael Chandler to be, because I think it's an interesting question. You know, in, in this, in this world where the UFC has, has so firmly entrenched its own dominance over the marketplace but you do still have the one FCs and the the Bellators of the world out there in, in occasionally putting together their own like talent, bringing up their own talent. Michael Chandler doesn't seem like a dude who comes around that often to me. Like I would consider him a pretty big free agent pickup for the UFC. Like uh, a guy who has been really good in Bellator, the former champion over there, an exciting fighter. Uh, he's got a good look. Uh, I would think that like you would want to bring him in and make something out of him, but but as you mentioned, the UFC often takes the the opposite track. My hope would be that, like, we would, if Michael Chandler were to cross the aisle, that we would get to see him, you know, in exciting matchups. And he's coming into that division we just talked about with Benil Dariush earlier in the show, where like you look around and and it's almost nothing but exciting matchups for a guy like uh, Michael Chandler. Like you, I, I'd like to see him fight Don Cerrone, even though Cerrone's a little bit. Uh, 
you know, not not at the peaks where he was at earlier. I, w- I would like to see him fight Ray Janal. I would like to see him fight Paul Felder or, uh, you know, Dan Hooker, Charles Oliveira, any of those guys. Like Michael Chandler makes a good matchup for almost anyone in the UFC lightweight top 15. And I would hope if there's if a deal is reached, if he did come over to the UFC, I would hope that the UFC would feel the same way and not just kind of like, uh, as you said, use him to to like make a point. I think that would be a shame. There would be a shame, especially because you're probably going to have to pay a pretty penny for that guy at this point if you're going to pry him away from Bellator. I mean, whether Bellator is super interested in retaining the services of Michael Chandler, I don't see Bellator as being like, well, we wish you the best of luck on your with your two-fight knockout winning streak guy we've invested a ton of money in, right. putting him in the damn Dave and Buster's ads and all kinds of shit, trying to make him a thing over the years. I think they're, they're going to want to be in that conversation. And the question is just like, does Michael Chandler at this point prize the opportunity to go over there in the UFC for a whole series of fresh challenges there? Or is he just trying to get like, what is the best guaranteed money I can get on the next deal? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I would think that uh, if Michael Chandler is going to make a run at leaving a mark on the sport, that the time is now he's 34 years old. He's probably got a few years left where he could be in his prime or he could, he could fight those top guys and have a good shot to beat them. Uh, I don't know anything about his, about the man's finances, but I would think if he if he is in, in any way secure or if he can get a better deal from the UFC than he could from Bellator, I mean now would be the time. If you're gonna if you're gonna make a move, I would rather see it happen now than see it happen five fights from now or whatever. Well, the only other thing on his personal life section on Wikipedia, Chad, as you'll no doubt recall from Friday's Power Hour, the personal life section always a, a fun thing to look at for MMA fighters. One thing we learned was that he started dating Brie Willette after emailing for two years. Right. Taking Don't, it slow. Never forget that. The only yep. other thing is that Chandler owns Training Camp, a fitness and MMA gym in Nashville. So he's he's got some irons in the fire. Don't you worry about yeah. the man's finances. Okay. Then it's time to start going after legacy, man. You got Training Camp. You got that one under the belt. Now you can think about other things. Ben, do you remember the last time... Benson Henderson got stopped in a fight. Anthony Pettis? Close. Anthony Pettis was 2013. Rafael Dos Anjos knocked him out in uh, 2014. And that was it, though. Since then, it's been only decision losses in the career of of Benson Henderson until Saturday night or Friday night. Excuse me. Bellator 243 against Michael Chandler. So that's pretty impressive, man. I got to say. For Chandler to go out there and and uh, take out Ben Henderson that way, yeah, absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back. Round number three. Ben, we talked about it at the top of the show Saturday night, of course, from the Apex Arena in Las Vegas, UFC 252. We're going to close out the trilogy, Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier. We talked in weeks previous to this about how it kind of feels like this one snuck up on us. Obviously, it's been a long time in the making, and we've known it's it's been coming for a long time, but then you turn around and you say, oh, shit, UFC 252 is this weekend. Are you hyped? What's your hype level? I feel like I haven't even had the opportunity to get hyped yet. 
My hype level is pretty high, honestly, because this is the one that seemed like you had something on the calendar coming up where, okay, this is legitimately big fight night that we're really going to solve something important. A lot of these other fights that the UFC has put together, especially because it doesn't seem like even the UFC can look that far ahead. It's like, you know, we're, we're filling out some of these fight cards at the last minute and it does make it hard to, to look ahead. But this one, I feel like it offers us at least the promise of some kind of meaningful finality one way or the other, either Stipe Miocic wins and goes, you know, two for three against Daniel Cormier here and really solidifies himself as the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time, especially the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time. Like resume wise, it'd be really hard to argue against him if he goes out there, especially gets another like stoppage win or something over DC. And if DC wins and really sticks to that promise, like to retire on top, take the belt, and walk off into the sunset at 41 years of age, that would be a great MMA moment, a great MMA story. Yeah. And one way or another, at least we can then hopefully come out of this and be like, we're done with that, with that three-fight series. We can we can put that one in the past books. Now, as Stipe would like to say. Turn the page, you might even say. There you go. Uh, Close the got? book. Like, this is an interesting fight, obviously, because uh, DC wins the first one. He's well in control of the second one until he kind of fades down the stretch. Miocic is able to get the win. How's this going to go for you? And, and if I, you know, gun to your head, who you got here? Who you pick? I'm taking Stipe. Stipe! For, for what reason, other than the fact that the MMA gods so uh, so frequently deny us the storybook ending? I feel like... While Daniel Cormier's wrestling was a little bit of a problem for for Stipe, I I feel like if we get into another one of those fights where it stretches out longer, and which I think the the wrestling will kind of lend itself to, even if you're if you're taking him down and trying to control him there, I don't see Daniel Cormier being able to stick to that for all five rounds and just try to grind out a decision against Stipe that way. I think Stipe is going to be a little bit more prepared for that approach this time, and I also I just think that. Uh, Maybe Daniel Cormier at 41, putting a whole hell of a lot into this training camp thing of his last one. I don't know if if he gets late into a fight with Stipe, if he's still going to have enough gas to go hard against that guy. I think, you know, Stipe seemed to figure out something like late in that fight where he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can hit this guy in the body and it's really going to take a toll on him. And I don't know. I, I feel like. If Daniel Cormier can get Stipe out of there early, like similar to what he did in the first fight, then then okay. I mean, the heavyweights, you know, can always have a coin flip early on. But if we settle into that fight and where both guys are kind of have a chance to figure something out, make some adjustments and everything, then I think Stipe finds a way to win it later in the fight. I sort of agree with you, although it kills me to say it. Uh, Cormier kind of suckered him in that first fight. Like... Uh, I mean, it was a good, it was a good little trap that he set up. For yeah, him, you know, well, led him into somewhat of a false sense of security, and then, uh, you know, blasted him out in the in the first round, and also controlled much of the second fight before fading down the stretch, and before uh, Miocic started to take a little extra gas in the tank uh, by hitting him in the body, taking a little bit of extra gas out of the tank. Uh, and I think, like, just skills wise, it seems like Cormier should should win. But I also know, as I said, that this sport is like the cruelest fucking thing in the world at times. And it's just hard for me to believe that that it's hard for me to picture DC winning and having that 
going out on top that way for whatever reason. I don't know. I just feel somewhat pessimistic about it. Uh, if you were Cormier, how would you approach this fight? Because the second fight, it seemed like he wanted to to box a lot as well as using his wrestling, but he also took a lot of punishment in that fight. Like for a long time, it seemed like his his stated game plan, or at least his, his the thing he had decided on, was that it didn't matter how many times Miocic hit him in the face. Like yeah. it seemed like like Cormier was definitely willing to get punched in order to land his own shots. And so, like, I feel like if you're Cormier, if you change your approach a little bit, maybe you try to wrestle a little more and spend a little bit more time trying to avoid as much damage as you took in the second fight, you should, by all rights, have a pretty good shot here. Yeah. And I mean, I think that Daniel Cormier probably went back to the gym with his coaches afterwards and they all said to each other, you know what, what we were doing early on was working. And we should have committed to that more and stayed with that. And I don't think he had an answer for it. And so I think that that's probably going to factor into how they're planning to go into the third one. It's interesting. I got a story coming out later this week because I kind of talked I talked to both camps and then somebody else who has been through a similar thing about like, how do you really go about preparing for a trilogy when you guys, you kind of know each other pretty well at this point. There's not a whole lot of surprises that you think you're going to see out of either one. But then like how far down the rabbit hole do you want to get of thinking about, well, here are the adjustments we made and then here are the adjustments he made and then here are the adjustments we're planning to make based on what we saw in the last fight and then here are the adjustments that we think they're going to make and then what we're going to do off of those. Like how many of those things do you want to try to game out beforehand when you're going into it and how much do you just tell yourself like, hey, look, we know what there is to know about each other. Let's just go out there and feel confident that we're better. And it's it's a weird kind of like psychological thing to get into because I think uh, – in a lot of ways, I think it's probably easier for Stipe to deal with because it's like, you know what Daniel Cormier feels like is his most comfortable thing when, if he's feeling any doubt and that's wrestling, like that's going to be the thing that he always kind of goes back to. And you also feel like, all right, I found a way to chip away at him a little bit later in that fight. And so he's going to have to deal with that threat. And I think that it makes you a little easier for Steep A to figure out like, okay, here's how to construct a game plan based on what he is likely to do and what he is likely to be worried about. And for Cormier, I think like he's probably going in there telling himself that it's just a matter of like physical execution. Like, you know, this the stuff that you keep hearing him say, like in interviews where he's just like, I don't feel like there's anything he does that's better than me. Like kind of the, a classic Daniel Cormier and like wrestler guy thing to be like, when I beat him, that was the universe exhorting the proper order. When he beat me, that was one time thing that's never going to happen again. Right. Just you a know? fluke. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think like this version of Daniel Cormier, maybe his age, feeling like he's at the tail end of his career. And then going up against, you know, a big, capable, still very much, it seems, in his prime heavyweight like Stipe, who is planning on getting, you know, defending the belt and then holding it down there for a while, not going anywhere. Uh, I feel like I kind of got to get the edge to Stipe there. But I also wonder, this is what I want to ask you, if Daniel Cormier wins, what do you think the chances are that he really follows through on that riding off into the sunset with the heavyweight title plan? Do you see Daniel Cormier at least one more time in the octagon? History tells us it's a zero percent chance, right? <laughs> like he would basically be the, the the first guy in the history of of all of combat sports to walk away at exactly the right moment. And you know, like I said at the top of the show, you've got Javier Mendez, a guy who knows DC pretty well, 
saying that he, he thinks that if the UFC threw a bunch of money at him to fight John Jones at heavyweight, that DC would probably do it. And so, well, do you think gonna, that's gonna, the fight that they would try to make? Like a heavy, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I think it depends. I think it depends on like what the options are. If you're Daniel Cormier, like, cause the only, the other option is Francis and Ganu. Right? right. And I see, and like, like if you're if DC, UFC, do you want that fight? I think stylistically, I maybe you do. Like if the UFC came to him and was like, okay, we know you said you're done, but how would you like to go off into retirement with, you know, three to six more million more dollars in the bank? Plus, I think Daniel Cormier probably wants to stay really friendly with the UFC since he wants that commentator job to continue as a, like a, a post-retirement plan. And so if the UFC comes to him like, we would really like you to defend the belt one time against Francis Ngannou, I think that DC probably looks at it and goes like, hey, stylistically, that guy can't wrestle and we saw it already and I know it. And everybody will love looking at the picture of the two of us on SportsCenter or whatever. And I'll probably do a whole lot of buys because people will think this guy's just going to crush me. And then I'll go out there and I'll just, you know, take him down over and over again. And I, then I'll, I'll go off into retirement with a little bit bigger nest egg. And that would be nice. Yeah, it's, it might very well be a monetary decision. I have no idea what direction the UFC wants to go. It does, you know, very recently it hasn't seemed like the UFC has wanted to pay anybody a bunch of money for super fights, right? True. Like we just had that conversation, but had that conversation with John Jones. So uh, I don't know what they would be willing to offer him to go up to heavyweight. He seems to want to get paid a lot, a lot more money. Although maybe if it's Daniel Cormier, John Jones is like, well, shit, I already beat that guy. Like I can do that again. Uh, maybe he takes less money than it would be against Francis Ngannou. But yeah, I think for DC, it's probably like a pragmatic decision, like what they offer him and how much money is on the table. Uh, Man, I just, and I agree, like stylistically on paper, DC should beat Francis Ngannou a bunch of times. But there's also a very good chance that you're, that if you go out there to fight Francis Ngannou, you got to pick your head up from the concession stand later in the night, because that's where it landed after he punched you. So uh, I, I see that that's that's like a dangerous fight to to me for for DC. So I think it probably would depend on uh, on how much money they wanted to pay him, which seems pretty straightforward. Uh, what, do we have odds on this thing? Do we have odds on Stipe DC three? Yeah. Do we know who the favorite is here? Uh, the favorite, very very slightly, is Daniel Cormier. Oh, interesting. Look at that, Daniel Cormier. Uh, according to Bovada, is minus one twenty. Stipe at minus one ten. So. And the makers don't want you to make too much money on this one. Right. Either if, way. Well, if, if Miocic wins, is it the same? Is it the same options? Is there a chance Miocic wins this thing and retires? No. Or do you think he sticks around? And are the options still either John Jones or, or Francis Ngannou? Pretty much. Yeah. And honestly, I think like if Miocic wins, then if I were the UFC, that's when I might be like, all right, let's reopen negotiations with John Jones on this because that is a massive fight. John Jones versus Stipe, you know, two champions in two different divisions. You could charge 80 bucks for that one on pay-per-view and we're still buying it. You know, Shh, dude, come on. <laughs> They're not, we're too late in the show. They're not listening to this. Well, you can't just say that. You can't give them those kind of ideas. Don't put <laughs> that evil know, out there in the world. You, you know, like that's, that's a huge fight. And if the UFC paid up to John Jones up front to make it happen, you'd make your money back on the back end there. Yeah, especially with ESPN helping you push that one out. Like if you did that one as kind of a year end fight card and you know, by then who knows, we may be really sports starved because there'll be no football or what, anything else going on by then. Uh, that would be a huge, because otherwise the alternative is Miosic versus Nganu too. And I think it looks pretty much exactly like the first one looked. 
All right, let's do listener mail. Or I'm sorry, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I, I don't know if you saw this story by uh, Ariel Helwani over there on ESPN saying that uh, Luke Rockhold has says he is not going to retire after all. Oh, says that he's coming shocking. Back. Shocking news. Um, he said in October it was very possible he'd never fight again. There's only one quote, it seems, from Luke Rockhold in this story. Uh, and it's when it seems Ariel asks him why he's coming out of like why he's decided not to retire and he's going to come back and fight. Rockhold's answer, quote, because I felt like it. Chad, I'm just saying. I believe that's a real Luke Rockhold quote. Yeah, potentially the most Luke Rockhold quote mm-hmm. in the man's life. And in, you can imagine history. just like you can imagine the expression on his face when he says it because I felt like it. Uh, just saying. God. Just sitting outside the mall with a skateboard and a cigarette. Like, <laughs> uh, just man, how about Robbie Lawler uh, stepping in on short notice to fight Neil Magny after Jeff Neal had to pull out with a, kind of like an undisclosed health scare here. Jeff Neal says he almost died, had to be hospitalized in the ICU with which sound, what's with what sounds like some kind of like crazy infection. Uh but it's almost like I forgot about Robbie Lawler for yeah. a minute with everything that's been going on, trademark. Uh, and now to see him step in for this fight, it's like a beloved TV character that had had slipped out of my mind suddenly shows up at the end of an episode. And now we got this cliffhanger for uh, what's going to happen with him. Uh, Robbie Lawler versus Neil Magny. I'm just saying, give it to me. It's mine. That's this is how it should be, man. Robbie Lawler just like shows up out of nowhere and and it's going to go in there and have a fight with Neil Magny. I'm into it. I'm, I couldn't be more into it. The MMA world I want to live in is one where we show up for an event and at any given moment, Robbie Lawler could walk out there and fight somebody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He should just be on standby, like designated hitter style. Like if uh, if someone just can't go, we'll break the glass on Robbie Lawler and let him out of the uh, let him out of the pen, and then yeah. he's uh, he gets to fight. Like if you hear a siren noise in the the UFC apex, it means look out because we've let Robbie Lawler out or he has escaped. Either way, yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. You don't want him to escape. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 252. Also, do not forget, we got that sweet, sweet Patreon content all week long over at patreon.com slash co-main event if you have not done it get over there and join the team you can hear us for the live chat on wednesday and then the power hour again on friday it's cool stuff man the kids have fun with it as for right now though we are done we are through we are out looking like a snack you who really says never that? Heard that? that from? people Where's say it from? say it all the time it's from the internet man it's from the culture what's, well, what's the origin I mean, I, I know that like you're looking like something I would like to eat. That, there you go. There you but go. I still, I don't. Where's it come from? They look really good, Chad. You might tell them they look like a whole ass meal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>